78% of buyers work with the first agent that they meet. So my job is to really insert myself into the process as soon as possible and then kind of nurture them along the way. How do most agents who don't have access to the secrets that the top agents in our industry hoard to themselves grow and prosper in today's real estate environment? That's the question, and this podcast is the answer. I'm Pat Hyman, and welcome to Real Estate Rockstars. Real Estate Rockstars, this is Aaron Wichestegi. I am coming to you today with an interview with Kimberly Meserve. You know, I, I am really excited about this interview with Kimberly. She's already talked to somebody else on our team and kind of did a pre-interview and got to go over a bunch of things. We actually reached out to Kimberly directly. You know, she's on the 30 Under 30, you know, big real estate agent out in Boston. Uh, she's got some fun stories about having to start fresh with her business and how quick she was able to rebuild that. So we reached out to her and asked her if she'd come on the podcast to share some of her stories. And she's here. And Kimberly, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about this. So as we get into, uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts, right, we're still living in a, in a COVID crazy world. Um, what is it like out in Boston where you live? Is real estate an essential service? Are people still, are, are they wearing masks? Are you allowed to do, go to restaurants? What's the, what's the vibe in Boston? Yeah, so real estate, thankfully, has been essential pretty much from the beginning of everything getting shut down. I think there was maybe like two or three days where we weren't really essential and everything was so up in the air. It was like that frenzy of, are we going to be able to do this? Are we not? What happens to the deals that are pending? Um, we had something in Massachusetts where the seller has to obtain a smoke certificate from the fire department before they can close. And so that was like a big hindrance in transactions that thankfully the attorneys were so quick in coming up with a workaround. So we've been pretty active since all this started. Um, and yeah, we've been masked from day one, actually, which I think is so funny watching people like on my Facebook in other parts of the country arguing about masks. They've been required since the very beginning of all of this here. And it's just kind of become the normal for us. We are thankfully, I think we're leveling out or maybe starting to slowly decrease, but people here are definitely still very cautious about opening back up. Yeah. The, it, it really changes everywhere. The out here where I'm at in Texas, you know, a, a couple of months ago, we, everybody got to celebrate going out to bars and restaurants and, and getting to live again and just kind of social distance with some rules in place. And then just about a week ago, the governor put, you know, mandatory masks in place. And you're right. You know, the mandatory mask thing is like this, it's a huge fiasco all over social media. Uh, it's very politicized on all different versions of it. And people, People, like some people don't mind at all and some people just hate it. So, but you're saying since the very beginning, you guys have, have been doing that. And now it's just a few months later, it's a way of life. Yeah, it started to loosen up a little bit, but we have kind of put a pause on our phases of reopening, but like it was required to go to the grocery store. It was required to do kind of everyday life. So I think especially in the city, people were very cautious. As you start to get outside of the city, people were a little bit more opinionated about the mask thing, but we've kind of just adapted. I think you're right. I think I think the population and the city type and and you know the the living environments really changes everything too. I mean, people that live in the suburbs and they don't come in contact with much. It's I mean, there's some counties in Texas that haven't had a single case, and so their opinion is going to be very different than the ones that are that are blowing up. So the well life. So in the last so since March, have you been? How's real estate been going? Have you been closing deals and doing deals? 
Yeah. So my business has actually been phenomenal this year, despite everything that's going on. I have already closed and pended everything and more than what I did last year, which is really cool. So I'm already up to about like 12 million in volume. I did um, just around 11 million last year. So it's been a little bit of a blessing in disguise. I think some of it has to do with, you know, my source of business, a lot of it is nurture. So it's just the pipeline kind of coming to fruition. The other part of it is focus. Like I'm forced to be so much more focused on my business right now. Um, I was one of those people that I was very proactive in the beginning when everything shut down. And instead of kind of sticking my head in the sand, it was like, okay, well, what do we need to do? How are we going to do it? Let's do something because doing something is better than nothing. And it's led to a lot of success in my business. So I'm very fortunate. Yeah. The, well, so that is great. So what did you do? What, what have you done in the last 12 months for volume? Uh, yeah. So in the last, oh gosh, 12 months. Or, well, or you could do last year. year. You could compare yeah, last, last year to this year. year. I'm like, oh, you're going to make me do math now. Like, <laughs> what, what did I do like this time until July last year? Um, last year I did around 11 million in volume. So that was about 25 units. I have an average price point around 500,000, which is actually low for our area, but most of my clients are first-time home buyers. So that's kind of like our first-time home buyer price point. And um, I've done over 12 million so far in 2020. Man, you are crushing it. So the, you've already done more than last year. And, the, and what do you think you're going to have by the end of the year? My goal is 25. I feel really confident that I'll get it, get there. The only kind of hindrance, I guess, could be we are super deep into a seller's market. Actually, Boston is the number one most competitive market in the country right now. There are neighborhoods and towns, especially in the suburbs, because everybody seems to want a little bit more space right now. Our lifestyle choices are changing. There are some areas that are under a month's worth of inventory. So it's very, very competitive in getting offers accepted. Properties are going easily 5 to 10% over asking. Yeah. The, that, so you're, you're right. So right now it's like, Hey, if you're able to do your job, you're going to get plenty of volume, but you have to work a lot harder because there isn't as many houses to, to compete for, for your buyer, especially if you're a buyer's agent, mostly you're competing a lot harder for those deals. Yeah, definitely. It's been a lot of expectation setting, even in March. I mean, the expectations I was having to set with people in March were a little bit different than now. That was more like, Hey, Showings are mostly going to be virtual and you might have to make a decision site on scene on our property. And if you're not able to do that, this might not be the market for you to buy in. But surprisingly, a lot of people were okay with that. We were putting contingencies in place on like um, seeing the property after an accepted offer. So that was also helping the sellers not have a lot of unnecessary foot traffic come through their house. But now it's more like, hey, are you willing to play the game because you will have to offer significantly over asking. You might have to waive part of your appraisal contingency. Inspections might be not an option for you. So it's just setting those clear expectations up front and really identifying their motivation. Because if they're not, then what's the point in us going to see a bunch of properties if they're not even willing to offer over asking? So we just want to be really clear with our clients and how we're using our time and just setting them up to succeed as well, because there's nothing more frustrating for a buyer than putting a bunch of offers in and they're not getting accepted only to find out that if they had paid more or changed something else in their offer that they could have gotten accepted. Rockstar Nation, this is Aaron Muchastegui. Hey, I hate to interrupt the current podcast that you're listening to, but I am so excited to share this with you. I just finished interviewing the original host of this podcast, my good friend, Pat Hyben. 
Now, I got to talk to Pat about how he started his real estate career and a whole bunch of tips and tactics that he used to be successful. So if you haven't listened to it yet, go check out State of the Market number 49. On there, I get to talk to Pat about all those different things. You know, and in there too, he talked a lot about his six steps for seven figures book and training program that he built over the last couple of years. And I realized I haven't done a good enough job of reminding all of you lately about all of the resources that we've built for you out there. So if you want to check out Pat's course, we've got like a three minute summary video when you go to it. It includes so many easy to follow tips that you can follow on it like a day to day basis. You can email reminders, all sorts of different things that come with that course. You find that you go to rebusuniversity.com, R-E-B-U-S, rebusuniversity.com. Look at courses. You can find the six steps for seven figures book. And really, there's a whole bunch of other courses in there too. Our normal prices used to be $1,500 or $2,000 a course. These are real deal professional courses. But now uh, during quarantine, a lot of them are priced down to like 90 bucks, 95 bucks. So we've slashed the prices because we know right now is a time for everybody to be focusing on growth and education, especially while they're feeling like they don't have as much to do. And if you go in there and you figure like, like there's a lot of different courses you want, Maybe you don't want to buy the a la carte. You can go to futureofrealestatetraining.com and you can get access to all of our different courses for 97 bucks a month. I think there's a discount on there if you go a year or there's even like a lifetime option that you can pay. You get access to every course we've ever put on Rebus University for as long as we have it. So go check out those options, Rebus University or futureofrealestatetraining.com. All right, back to your podcast. Sorry for the interruption. Yeah, you're right. Like you put, you put forth through all the effort and that's a, how do you have that conversation? So like, or, or if a, if a client says like, Hey, I'm hoping to get a deal and, and this is how much I can afford. I can, I can afford 450, but let's go look at these houses for 500. Do you just say no? Like right now we like, it's a, it's a seller's market. We're not going to, we're not going to be able to compete in that. So a lot of it for me, is setting the expectation in the buyer consultation. We talk about what the market's doing and the prop. I always set the expectation of my client that, Properties that are new on the market are probably going to go over asking as long as they're in good condition and they're priced appropriately. So if you want a deal and there are still deals to be found, I've had some clients recently that closed with like 30 grand in equity in their condo. But I always say, if you want a deal or you want to be offering a little under asking, then we only want to be looking at the houses that have been sitting on the market like oh, two weeks or longer, because that means they're over the pri- overpriced. The market has identified that that property is overpriced. If it's been on the market for two weeks, it's a it's a problem because everything else is selling so quick. At least it's easy yeah. to figure out if you comped it right. The if you don't if you don't if you don't have any offers in that first week, you're like, oh crap, we gotta we gotta adjust this a little bit. So you deal mostly buyers agents, right? Yeah, uh, my business is about ninety five percent buyers. Cool. We're gonna get into how you built your business and do that. But when take me back when you first got your real estate license, what, how long ago was that, and where were you? Yeah, I got my license when I was 24. I bought my first house then and I'd always been interested in real estate, but I didn't really know how to get into it. I was living in Southern Maine at the time and uh, my agent was the one that kind of showed me the way how to get my license. She's the reason that I'm at Keller Williams. But the first year in business was really tough for me. I, <laughs> None of my friends were buying houses. I was kind of the first in my whole crew. And so I kind of uh, prospected expired, Spitzbos, but it was a little bit of a learning adventure. And then I think it really wasn't until like the last two years that I've kind of found my stride. Yeah. So you're right. You know, you're, you're at an age where they're not able to like your network isn't home buyers yet. Right. So the network and the people you knew the, the, uh, they weren't there. And so you, you tried to find, you, so you tried kind of all the things that people, people do. And so you started in Southern Maine 
and the you know and there's i think in some of the notes we said there's a big difference between the way that maine and massachusetts work the what's the so tell me about that yeah it's not like a huge difference but there is a noticeable difference so maine and new hampshire which is where i originally was licensed both of those are like a one contract state so your offer is also your purchase and sale. Uh, in Massachusetts, we're an attorney state versus those two are title states. So we actually have two contracts. Um, your offer is the contract to purchase. That's kind of like an abbreviated version of the PNS. And then uh, two weeks into the contract, we typically sign the purchase and sale. So that's when the attorneys get involved and they write up their attorney long form version of the contract. Is there a standard form for that attorney long form? The, so like the attorneys get involved, but is it always kind of the same thing or is that, does the negotiation start over? It's different every time. Well, the, I should say like they do have a kind of a base that they start off of and then there's always nuances for each transaction. But uh, usually the negotiation doesn't start over, but I have had a few deals. Like I had one a couple of weeks ago, almost actually a month ago that almost didn't close at all because some of the terms changed slightly at the purchase and sale and the seller decided that they just didn't want to sell anymore, which you can't do. Um, it was a very stressful transaction and it was actually some of my best friends were buying the house too. So I had like an additional emotional involvement because I'm like, these are my friends. I want them to get this. Um, but there's actually, there was a famous court case years ago in Massachusetts that established legal precedent for the contract to purchase being a legally enforceable contract so we ended up closing never having the purchase and sale which was that was a first for me it doesn't happen very often at all yeah the i mean in in real estate in general you know buyers are allowed to cancel and sellers aren't allowed to cancel you know and buyers have a penalty but sellers can be forced to sell so that's pretty unique that the you know in most cases you need that second one but if you really have to hold their feet to the fire you can close on that first one and you know, force someone to sell it. So the I have never heard of that. That is that's super super interesting. I've never done business in a state where we needed to have two. Uh, when we used to do new home building, that was really common. We would send someone over. We'd call it an LOI. It'd be like a ten page contract, and then our agreement was within two weeks. We would write up a formal, you know, contract between attorneys because of all those. So I I think it's it's probably similar to some of that. But doing that for uh, single family houses, I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have guessed. So how 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 did you do when you were in Maine? So the, how did you, how was your success in real estate there? It wasn't much. <laughs> I yeah. couldn't tell you my volume, but I can tell you it wasn't a lot. 50,000 in GCI. So like I was better than my job that I left. Um, Cause that was my first job out of college. I was making maybe like $35,000 a year, which was uh, not a lot, but also I was young. So my first year maybe made like 50,000 my second year around the same. And then at the end of 2017, I decided that I just, you know, I'd always lived within 45 minutes, an hour of where I grew up. And I decided I'm young. I don't have kids. I don't have a husband. Like I want to try living somewhere new. And if this, if I'm going to do it, this is the time. So I packed my things up and I moved to outside of Boston. I moved to the North shore. Um, I had a friend who was the director of operations on a team there. And she was like, yeah, just come join the team. We're always looking for talented agents. And it was a good opportunity for me to just get the lay of the land, learn how to do transactions in Massachusetts, get some leads too, since I didn't know anybody, um, and just learn like the overall geography. So I was with that team from November of 2017 until about September of 2018. So mid-summer of 2018, 
they decided they wanted to do expansion on a more local level. So Boston was their first expansion market that they wanted to expand into. And so I was offered the opportunity. I took it. In the short time I lived in Massachusetts, the few friends I had made were in the Boston area. So I was like, you know what? I'm young. I want to live in the city. This will be fun. So about a month after I moved to be their expansion partner, I got a call that all the agents, except for three um, in the hub, and then two of the admin were all quitting. And I had no idea that any of this was going on. I'm like, on my own little island here. I thought everything was great. You thought there was an office you were going to and you got there and it was empty. Well, I... (laughs) I went to my market center in Boston. So um, I didn't know any of that was going on in the different market center and in Beverly, Massachusetts. Oh, got it. So they called me and they're like, hey, this is the situation. Uh, do you want to stay on the team? We totally get it if you don't. And I, so just to back up the conversation, when I did decide to move as their expansion partner was they were, they did a lot of commissions and leads. So pay-per-click, same thing as like Boomtown, any of those sources. Well, those can typically be like a longer term lead before they actually transact, usually like closer to a year. And so they were like, hey, we're willing to pay for commission sync leads in Boston, but you're also going to need to get some more immediate business. And like, that's kind of up to you. So in July, a month before I did move, my lender partner and I started doing first time homebuyer workshops. And it actually became kind of a hit. So in September, when I found out that everybody was leaving and they gave me this option to stay or leave, I looked at all the business that I had under contract and it was all stuff I had generated on my own. So the value for me to stay on the team like really wasn't there. And I made the decision ultimately to leave. Yeah. But the, I guess now you're in Boston, now you're getting ready to start and it was kind of having to, to start fresh. You decided you were going to, going to rebuild. And this is, I think one of the most exciting parts of your story, right? So the, so how many years ago was that that you, that you got to Boston? Uh, not even two years ago. So I'm just coming up on my two year anniversary. All right. So almost you've been in Boston, almost two years. When you got here, you had no pipeline, no deal flow, no team starting from scratch. And now two years later, you're crushing it in volume and 30 under 30 and all that. How did you go from, how did you restart? How did you go from, from nothing to so big so quickly, uh, in a place that you weren't from? Yeah. So uh, thankfully a lot of my success came from those first time homebuyer workshops. So when I had to make that decision, do I stay on the team? Do I leave? Um, my business that I had under agreement was from the first time buyer workshops. So I kind of took a gamble on myself and I was like, I'm just going to go all in on this thing. And so that's been huge for my pipeline. Um, I always get about 25, 35 people somewhere in that range attend each event. And we used to do them at our local brewery. Now it's all virtual because of COVID. And then I have about the prior years, it's been closer to a 17% conversion rate. And now it's actually gone up to about 20%. So I'm always getting like five or six clients out of each event. And it's not always immediate business, maybe like one or two is immediate, then there's a batch, like two or three that are six to 12 months out, and then there's going to be longer term nurtures. So this year, I closed a lot of people that came to some of my original events in 2018. Rockstar Nation, this is Aaron Amuchastegui. Hey, I hate to interrupt the current podcast that you're listening to, but I am so excited to share this with you. I just finished interviewing the original host of this podcast, my good friend, Pat Hyben. You know, I got to talk to Pat about how he started his real estate career and a whole bunch of tips and tactics that he used to be successful. So if you haven't listened to it yet, go check out State of the Market number 49 
on there. I get to talk to Pat about all those different things. You know, and in there too, he talked a lot about his six steps for seven figures book and training program that he built over the last couple years. And I realized I haven't done a good enough job of reminding all of you lately about all of the resources that we've built for you out there. So if you want to check out Pat's course, we've got like a three minute summary video when you go to it. It includes so many easy to follow tips that you can follow on it like a day to day basis. You can email reminders, all sorts of different things that come with that course. You find that you go to rebusuniversity.com, R-E-B-U-S, rebusuniversity.com. Look at courses. You can find the six steps for seven figures book. And really there's a whole bunch of other courses in there too. Our normal prices used to be $1,500 or $2,000 a course. These are real deal professional courses. But now uh, during quarantine, a lot of them are priced down like 90 bucks, 95 bucks. So we've slashed the prices because we know right now is a time for everybody focusing on growth and education, especially while they're feeling like they don't have as much to do. And if you go in there and you figure like, like there's a lot of different courses you want, maybe you don't want to buy the a la carte. You can go to futureofrealestatetraining.com and you can get access to all of our different courses for 97 bucks a month. I think there's a discount on there if you go a year or there's even like a lifetime option that you can pay to get access to every course we've ever put on Rebus University for as long as we have it. So go check out those options, Rebus University or futureofrealestatetraining.com. All right, back to your podcast. Sorry for the interruption. I think it's great that you know your numbers. You know that you went from 17% conversion to a 20% conversion on the people that were coming in. So now virtual, do you have more people sign up? And how often do you do them? You do them weekly or monthly? Or So in 2018 and 2019, we were doing them monthly. And towards the end of last year, we started to do twice a month. So this year, I've been doing two to three times a month. I pretty much just reverse engineered my goal for the year. So I decided, okay, this is how many units I want to do. So I'm just going to back it up based on my numbers and figure out how many workshops I need to do. How many workshops? So now, so the virtual one, so you would have 20 or 25 or 30 people show up when you did it at a, at a local bar. How many people are showing up to the virtual ones? That's tricky. So the thing about when we did it at the brewery is like, we could measure every single person that was actually there, right? So you might have couples with the virtual ones. I think that probably about 60% on the call are couples, but not everybody turns on their camera. So it's hard to say. So we usually have about like around 18 people, but that could actually be like 30 people. So I don't have it. Like we've done about eight or nine of them now virtually, but I still haven't really figured out a great system for measuring that. Yeah. The, I could totally see that. Yeah. When you're on there, you're like, or, or were they watching? Right? Did they were the people without the cameras on? Were they listening? Were they a part of it? Were they just you know so not being able to count? Part of me would think that I mean right now you would get more people showing up virtually than than in person because you know it's they've got people that have less to do right so maybe there's a chance to to log on and see it but it sounds like your numbers are similar to where they were you know transitioning to virtual and then when you decide you want to increase your volume you just had to increase your top of funnel and your top of funnel was going and doing more workshops. Exactly. I'm super measured about everything I do. I think that's been my biggest lesson is just learning to track everything in my business and get hyper-focused on one thing. Um, that's something my coach has helped me with a lot is just like, I'm a big believer when you're putting together your business plan that you have like your three priorities, but you don't earn the right to go on to the second priority until you really mastered the first priority. So ideally your first priority on your business plan should be able to get you to hundred percent of your goal. And so that was a conversation that I had a lot with my coach last year was like, 
oh, I want to go to priority two because maybe I got bored or I wanted to mix things up. And some of the success is always found in like the monotony and repetition. And we always would say, well, have I done everything that I can to master this? And it's just created this involvement of the system getting better and better each time. So the, how do you get people, how do you advertise your, your workshop? How do you get people to actually sign up for it and how long the workshop lasts? Yeah, so the advertising uh, is super simple. Whenever I tell people, they're like, well, are you doing anything else? All I do is Facebook ads. And I direct them to an Eventbrite page. And then um, on there, there, it's a little bit more information about the event. And they just sign up. I'm capturing their name, email, and phone number um, so that I can text them before the event to confirm that they're attending. And then the event itself is anywhere between like an hour and 15 minutes to an hour and a half. Some of it depends on the level of questions we're getting. So just to your point about even knowing if they're like actually participating, we try to encourage as much engagement as possible because a lot of times people can be shy about asking a question, but chances are we've heard it already a million times from other people during events. And then probably someone else on the call has the same question. So like we have pauses in our script where it's just like, answer this or does anyone make it want to make a guess at this and at the beginning it was a little awkward just like getting comfortable in the silence of wanting to like proceed but then I just forced myself like I'm just gonna sit here until someone answers and then it really gets like the ball flowing with engagement so we're doing it on zoom and we tell people to either unmute yourself if you have a question or type it into the chat box so the guys that is and that's almost like a public speaking art too so you ask a question and and if nobody answers you just wait until somebody finally says says something it's like because otherwise there's a chance that people don't want to answer the whole time so you force them to start talking and then after that every it's easier for everybody yeah exactly um and also i think too on zoom like they might in the beginning they might not be expecting a question so they might like not be right by their keyboard which is part of just like giving them a little bit of time to actually type that answer in. Yeah. They're like, no, really you can, you can type it in. And so, so in Facebook, you're doing your targeted ads and then it takes them to an event, right? Right. Page really simple stuff so far. What are you saying on Facebook? Like, Hey, I'm Kimberly. I'm doing a, I'm doing a buyer's workshop. Yeah. So what I've actually done is I created my own event, like separate from myself. It's not none of the Facebook advertising says like the street property team at Keller Williams, which is my team. I actually created this event um, with kind of a bigger goal in the end in mind, but it's called Bruise and Buying First Time Home Buyer Workshop. So I created a Facebook page for it. All the advertising goes through the Bruise and Buying page. And our ad is actually super simple. It's pretty much just like, are you interested in buying a home? Come find out about the special financing programs available to first time home buyers. And there's a link to the sign up. And I think the financing aspect, especially in our market where the entry level price point is really intimidating to some people like they see 500,000 and they're like I can't afford that until they look at the monthly payment and realize that a lot of times it's less than what they're paying in rent so um we always try to hook them in with that financing thing that's super cool so the so what do you call your workshop the brews and buyers brews and buying first time home buyer workshop brews and buying first time home buyer so then it's kind of like that's branded so when people see that i mean that sounds better than first time home buyer workshop anyway right so now they're like okay it's a it's an official thing it's a real thing they get there how long do the workshops last yeah so they're about an hour 15 to an hour and a half depending on engagement and then you just try to teach buyers what it's going to what what to expect with buying a house like how the process works and is that the is that the biggest goal yeah so my whole like 
selling strategy, I guess, is to provide as much value up front with people before I ask them for anything. I just, I never feel comfortable like asking for a close until I feel like I've really provided the value to match that. So we talk, we walk through the whole process. We stop, but start by talking about what's going on in the market. What are, what have people heard from maybe friends or family, which I think that's always interesting too. I have some people say that they've heard that it's a buyer's market. We couldn't be any further from a buyer's market. So we're always kind of like going through some of those myths and debunking it, uh, talking about advantages to buying a home. What are tax advantages? Um, we've got some great tax advantages that are specific to our area as well. There's a tax exemption if you're owner occupied in Boston, which could make your property taxes super cheap. Um, and then we talk about financing, different financing programs available. In Massachusetts, we have a, a mass housing program, which is an awesome option for kind of a lower income. I think you have to make under like 100 grand or something like that. Um, and you can get a down payment assistance. So you can have a 0% down. You just have to come up with your closing costs. Um, so we talk about those different options and then just the whole process. Okay, you're here today. What's next? How does the whole transaction go? And then different types of properties. Um, what do you need to know with a condo versus a multifamily versus a single family? And then at the very end, I'm the whole, like about halfway through the event to the very end, I'm just starting to tee them up for like the next step is to meet with me. So um, I'll say like, if you're under a year or if you're like 18 months or less from buying a home, then the next step is to set up a time to meet with me and we can talk about what your search criteria looks like. Even if you're not ready to go out and start looking at properties and making an offer, we can at least start getting you property alerts so you can see what properties are going on the market for and what they're selling for. So that by the time you're ready to buy, you're going to be one of the most educated buyers out there. I'm also encouraging them to meet with my mortgage lender as well, because they might have good credit, but he might be able to help them get from good to great, which will get them a better interest rate. So I'm setting that expectation along the way. Um, and I've heard a statistic that said about like 78% of buyers work with the first agent that they meet. So my job is to really insert myself into the process as soon as possible and then kind of nurture them along the way. So I'm a big believer, like I sign buyer agency with everybody. I don't work with someone unless I have that buyer agency agreement. So I'm trying to get them to the appointment from there. Um, and then we'll do like a buyer consultation, but I might have someone that's like, I, I just had people actually that closed in April that I had them signed since 2018. Their goal originally was to buy in 2019 and then they ended up getting married and some of that, those plans changed. Um, and they didn't buy until this year, but a lot of it is just like nurturing those people, whatever stage they're at in the process. Yeah. So that is really, really great. So the, I, I love that statistic too. There, you know, 70% of people at the first agent they meet. So your goal is to become the first agent they meet, right? And so it's a really simple yeah. thing like, hey, just, just come to a workshop. There's other people there. You can ask some questions. No big deal. No pressure. At the end of it, then people are like, okay, if you're within 18 months, that's also a very, like, that's not a very intimidating thing. Somebody says, all right, yeah, why? even if they're not ready to buy now, right? And, 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 do, do a lot of those 18 month people turn into quicker after that appointment? Do you have people that say they want to wait and then they meet with you and realize they can do it right now? Oh yeah. I've had plenty of people that are like, Oh, I'm six months. I'm a year out. And I find that the, the turning point is usually once they start getting their property alerts and they start seeing what properties look like in their price range and they might see something that they fall in love with and they end up becoming a much quicker buyer than they initially thought. Yeah. You're like, all right, anytime in the next 18 months, take a look at this stuff. And all of a sudden they're in. So your goal is to see them first, do that education, provide a bunch of value. So what does it look like once they're signed up? So you said you have a team 
and you're doing a ton of volume, do you show them all the houses? Do you have teammates that show? Well, what parts of the transaction do you do? What does your team do? And how does that work? Yeah. So I just have a small but mighty team. Um, so I'm the only that. agent on the team. We have a transaction coordinator. Um, I'm in the process of hiring a replacement admin right now. And then I have a showing assistant. So I am doing the consultation, any type of negotiation and like main point of communication with the client. And then my showing assistant will show them anything um, and then attend the home inspection and walk through. So up until like earlier this year, I had had some showing assistants in the past that just like weren't the right hire or I rushed the process too much and it didn't work out. So I was mainly the person doing all the showings, which was a lot of work. I was like, my days were just like running around doing showings all day long. So now um, the cool thing is just getting that leverage in place. I've been able to focus my time a lot more on lead generation and lead follow-up, which was something that was kind of slipping through the cracks before. Yeah. The, that sounds when my, when my wife had built up her brokerage and, and was, was doing, she was do, doing a ton of volume too. And she said very, it was a very similar setup, right? So she was pretty much the only agent. She had somebody that would, that would show houses, do the open houses, a transaction coordinator. And you're right how like you're small, but mighty. Um, do you think that that's, you think that's an ideal setup for people to the, and is there a, is there a volume that you get to where you say, Hey, I need to, I, I need to outsource this instead, or do you have future plans like that? Or do you think, Hey, this will get you to 20 million? Um, well, I will do 20 million. I'll do, I should do about 25 million just with the current team set up this year. I think for me, it's more determining like when I look at next year's goal, because of the amount of events that I can do and then some other things that we have in the pipeline as far as automations, I, it's going to be a huge jump. And so the hard thing for me now is like, I, I focus so much on profit right now in my business. So we have a really high profitability because our expenses are super low. My only lead gen expense is the advertising that I put into the event. Um, and so I think some people like want really big teams and that's more of an ego thing than anything. But then you look at the bottom line and the profitability just isn't there. So for me, profit is the most important, but then it's also like determining my lifestyle from there. Like when I look at next year's goal, I'm like, wow, that's a really big number. And I know that I can do it, but like, do I really care about doing that? And so at a certain point it, it becomes like, well, who else is kind of coming into my world? I actually have a past client right now that I'm talking about hiring. He got his license while he was under agreement. And then after he closed on his house, he was able to take the test and he's been kind of like coming into my world like, hey, 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 I want to do this. And I want to work with you. There was a reason that we chose you as our agent. Like, you're the best. I really want to work with you. And we've been going through the entire hiring process. So I think you like get to a certain point where you're like, this is a, a a good amount of money for me to make. And then you start thinking about how you can impact other people's lives beyond that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you said so many things right there that were so important, right? Like making sure that it's profitable as people grow businesses too. I've seen people, you know, hire a new person at 5,000 bucks a month and it's only going to grow their revenue $5,000. So the, it's like they're creating more work without the actual outcomes. You're saying, Hey, you want to focus on profit, but then you also need to look at what sort of life you want to live. Because it does sound like if you did 10 buyer's agent workshops a month, you would be able to get, you know, do a ton more revenue, a ton more volume, but then you'd be doing them every two days and maybe, you know, you'd be busy, way busier than you are now. And maybe it's not uh, worth it at some point, that law of diminishing returns. So, so if somebody's listening to our podcast now, new agent, new to an area, just getting started, and they said, hey, that sounds awesome. I want to start a buyer's agent workshop. 
what what should they do first? The I mean, that we you kind of dissected it for us. You're like, hey, you get you get the name, you get the event page, you do the ads. What should they focus on? Yeah, so I think just sit down and it's funny. I have a lot of agents try to attend my events, and I like we have to scrub. It's gotten to the point that enough people have heard about this that we have to scrub the list every time because we don't want agents on the call. It's messing up my numbers um, when I look at like attendance yeah. and conversion and. Um, I also say like when people are like, Oh, I want to attend your event. I'm like, why? Like, you know how the whole transaction works. Like I'm not, this isn't any special sauce that I'm doing here. I'm just explaining the process. So first I would suggest sitting down and just thinking of like everything along the way from when a buyer's just thinking about buying to when they actually close and what kind of questions or concerns might they come up with a lot of my um, a lot of the content that was put into this was based off the experience that I had when I bought my first house, because there were a lot of things that my agent didn't tell me along the way. Like I didn't know that I didn't have to pay a buyer's agent. And I remember panicking halfway through because I was like, Oh my gosh, I've spent all my money. And like, I have to come up with more money to pay my agent. And I don't even know how much. And then when I asked her, she was like, Oh no, you don't pay me. And it's like, well, you could have saved me like a nice night of like sleepless worry. Yeah. So yeah, just sit down, think about all the things that people may have concerns about, questions about, and use that as your outline to come up with some type of content for the event. The advertising is pretty easy. Anybody, I think a lot of people are pretty savvy with Facebook now. Any Keller Williams agents that are listening to this, you can do it very easily through command, through those ad um, channels. And then the most important thing is measuring everything and being consistent with it. So I didn't just do this once. Like it's a system that I've constantly improved. I've measured ads. There were some ads that I was doing that I thought I was getting a great return on. And then I went and looked at the numbers and I realized that I wasn't. And then also I had some events where maybe like 35 people showed up and I was like, yes, that was a success, but I had very low conversion rate. And I had other events where only five people showed up in the beginning and I was super bummed, but then every single one of those people became my client. So, you know, I'll take five clients if, after an hour and a half of work, like that's Absolutely. great. So yeah, just really tracking your numbers and treating it like a real business and then being consistent. If this is something that you are going to do, like commit to doing it. Yeah. I think that is, that is great advice. I think I, I love the niche that you're doing. I love, I love that you were able to figure out a way, you know, to do it that now, now you're known for it. And the, and, and I think one of the best parts is again, just within two years, you've got a huge amount of volume and now you get to be the, you know, the entry level, you know, home buyer agent out there. So what's, do you have any advice for, you know, that of something we haven't talked about yet? Something that you wish you could have told yourself the first year, you know, when you started in like what, what, you know, we didn't know that we didn't have to pay buyer's agents. What didn't you expect as an agent, right? You know, when you first started. Yeah. The advice I always give to newer agents is just figure out one thing that you love and put your energy towards that. I think the problem is that in real estate, there are so many ways to catch a fish. And sometimes agents tend to be like, Oh, I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this. Like I talked to one agent who has a pretty good business. Um, but he had like 10 main, main lead generation sources, which that is so much to me. Um, I'm always of the, the mindset that like less is more, obviously you want to be careful of that too. Like you don't want to put all your eggs in the bucket of expired. Like I would be in a really bad place right now if that was my business because there almost are no expired listings in our area just because of the way our market is. Yeah. But like if there's something that you really love, like maybe you just love like getting together with people and drinking wine, like 
figure out how to get into relationship with more people because all this really is, is just relationships, right? So just figure out what your thing is that you love doing and commit to doing that thing at a high level instead of trying to do everything. I think that's the challenge I had in my first year was I, I was trying Fizbo's, I was trying expired because I saw other people having success in these areas, but I was spreading myself too thin. Yeah. I think that is great advice. So Kimberly, if somebody wants to reach out to you, find you, ask you questions, uh, send you referrals for people that are heading to Boston, what's the best way they can find you? Yeah, you can find me on Facebook, um, Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-E, Missouri. And then um, also feel free to email me. My email is Kimberly at streetpropertyteam.com or shoot me a text at 978-587-6489. We absolutely love agent-to-agent referrals. That was my number two source of business last year. Um, So happy to take great care of your people. Or if you just have a question, I'm always happy to give back because I just want to see people getting better in their businesses. Yeah. You know, at the beginning I asked Kimberly, you know, what, what's the best thing she could get out of this podcast? And, and, you know, she just said she just wants to be able to provide value. She wanted to be able to help other agents and really raise the bar for agents out there and provide value in. And Kimberly, you sure did today. I really appreciate having you on here and uh, we, maybe we can have you on again soon, or maybe we'll get you on Rebus University teaching some classes on how to host some of those first time buyer workshops. Cause uh, everything you did today, I think, I think it's great what you've done so quick. So thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Rockstar Nation, thank you for listening to Real Estate Rockstars. Listen, I need a favor. If you find this free content helpful, if you find our downloadable items from each guest helpful, please, I need you to pull out your pointing finger, yes, the one finger that points at people, and hit subscribe. Yes, subscribe. The more subscribers we get, the better we look in the ratings, and the easier it is to get guests like Robert Kiyosaki, Barbara Corcoran, all the players that are on the million-dollar listing in the different cities. All that stuff makes it easier the more subscribers we get, so please subscribe. And listen, there's a lot of places you can leave comments. There's a lot of places you can like. We're on Facebook. We have an Instagram page. Instagram page is I am Pat Hyben. The Facebook is Real Estate Rockstars Radio. Feel free to leave us comments there. The most popular form of commenting seems to happen on YouTube. Yes, for whatever reason, it's a very open environment. So just go to YouTube and go to Real Estate Rockstars Radio and leave us comments there. Some of them we will read on the show. And we love your feedback. So thanks, guys, and I hope you are having a great day. Oh, and also, listen, if you're going to subscribe and you haven't already left us a a review on iTunes, please do that, too. Have a great day, and thanks so much, Rockstar Nation. I really appreciate you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.